Genocide Podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and in this episode, we will discuss a people group that has lived long and prospered in the collective memory of people around the world, despite being relevant on the world stage for an extremely short amount of time. They were a people that, to the best of our knowledge, did not have a written language, yet were able to make demands of emperors and popes. Their most well-known leader was thought to be a fierce barbarian, yet died rather ingloriously in his bed instead of on the battlefield. So sing it with me now. Let's get down to business to discuss the Huns. Okay, that was fun. But before we get too far into this, I should mention that a lot of what follows is told from a Christian perspective by Christian writers. This perspective serves as the major source of reliable information that has come down to us about the Huns. In most cases, the people writing about the Huns were their enemies, and they had an interest in making the Huns look as bad as possible. The sources are all concerned with Christians and Christianity, and that naturally presents a certain bias in what has been written down. Just thought I'd mention that at the outset. We'll start by taking a look at the movie that introduced the Huns to most people my age, and still serves as an excellent movie even today. I am, of course, talking about the Disney animated classic Mulan. Released in June 1998, Mulan, for those of you who have been living under a rock for the last 21 years, tells the story of a brave girl who takes her father's place in the Chinese army in order to fight against Shan Yu and the invading Hun army. Now let me start out by saying that I absolutely love this movie, and it is in my top 5 Disney movies of all time list, right up there with Emperor's New Groove, Hercules, Beauty and the Beast, and The Great Mouse Detective. This is one of the few Disney live-action remakes that I'm actually really looking forward to. The songs Be a Man and, Re- and Reflection are awesome songs that I will always sing along with. But despite Donny Osmond singing the famous line, Let's get down to business to defeat the Huns, and telling us all of the qualities that constitute a man, the movie kind of got it a little wrong. The Huns probably shouldn't have been there in the movie. Now before you hit me and my cow with some dishonor, let me explain. The Battle of Hua Mulan is a poem that tells the story of Hua Mulan and serves as the foundation of the Disney movie that is built on. Now, a quick note, there's a lot of names in here that I'm not entirely sure of their pronunciation. I'm going to give it my best shot, so know that. (laughs) Anyway, the poem is set in the northern Wei area of Chinese history, which spans from the 380s AD to the 530s AD. We know that the people we know of as Huns were hanging out in Eastern Europe around 370 AD. That's when the first reliable Roman sources start to mention them as a people group anyway. Now I say Roman sources because, remember, the Huns didn't write anything about themselves. Literally everything we know about them is written by someone else. We don't even know if they had a written language in order to write anything down about themselves or anyone else for that matter. So, since the Huns can't be in multiple places across thousands of miles at the same time, and since they didn't leave any written records anywhere, that's a slight issue. Here's another one. While we aren't 100% certain where the word Hun comes from, it could possibly come from the Greek as Onoi or the Latin Huni. So, while it is entirely possible that the Chinese people could have used the same Greek word, I don't think it's very likely. Of course, I could be entirely wrong here. This is one of those slippery topics where scholars don't really know for sure. And if you think the etymology of the word Hun is fun, rhyming, ha, the same uncertainty can be found in the name of their most well-known leader, Attila. It's possible that his name should be pronounced Attila instead of Attila. 
Now, I'll continue to use Attila just because it's easier to say, and after our Mithridates series, we need some easy-to-pronounce names. Anyway, we have to be swift as the coursing river to cover all the ground we need to cover, without getting bogged down in the history of names, no matter how fun that would be. Fun fact, the name of the big bad guy in Mulan is Shan Yu, which is the word for chief in the language of the Zhongnu people, who we will talk about in just a few minutes. Moving on. So far, we have two issues with the Disney portrayal of the Huns in the animated classic Mulan, geography and etymology. So why did the Huns appear in the movie if they might not have actually been there? Well, for one thing, Disney has pretty consistently played fast and loose with historical accuracy in their movies. Just watch Pocahontas and do a smidgen of research and you'll see what I mean. Second, it's super easy to rhyme Huns and Sons in the Be A Man song. Let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. Did they send me daughters when I asked for sons? See what I mean? <laughs> Third, it is possible that the Disney writers went with an idea from a man named Joseph de Guines. Now, who is this guy? In 1756, Joseph de Guines published a book which t its title in English reads The General History of the Huns, Turks, and Mongols. In that book, de Guines hypothesized that the Huns of Europe were the same group as the Xiongnu, a people group who terrorized Han China from the 3rd century BC all the way to the 1st century AD. Now, the main problem with this hypothesis is that de Guines offers no historical data to back up this claim. Remember, again, the Huns didn't write anything about themselves at all, so there isn't anything written down that details the transformation of a theoretical Zhongnu to Hun uh, going down. Here's one thing that we do know. Ever since de Guines' work, modern historians seem to have felt compelled to at least mention his hypothesis, just like I've done. But while we don't know for certain, I think it's at least remotely possible that they could possibly be the same. Here's why. There are some similarities with the Xiongnu and the Huns. We know that they both were nomadic people and had similar fighting styles using mountain troops. Both groups also liked all the loot and the shiny things that they could put in their, their bags of holding. Both the Han Chinese and the Romans sent large amounts of gold and treasure to the Xiongnu and the Huns in order to keep them from attacking. But when they attacked, things got really bad really fast. First, the Xiongnu. Grand historian Sima Qin described the Xiongnu as being like a flock of birds or a sudden wind as they advanced and retreated like a mist with the speed of lightning. They proved so elusive that fighting them was the same as fighting in the Yangtze without a net. Now, the Yangtze River is the third longest river in the world and is the longest in Asia. Fishing in it without a net could be done, in theory, but it would not be easy, and any rumors of Xiongnu discontent were viewed with apprehension in Han China. Finally, the Xiongnu were leaders of a great confederacy of people groups which they used to terrorize the Chinese. The same could be said for the Huns of Eastern Europe. Fast attacks at the head of a large confederacy of allied troops, but similarities do not necessarily mean truth. So for now, let's turn away from what we do not know and focus on what we do know. According to Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus, in his work The Roman History, the Huns were the source of all the disasters inflicted by the god Mars. With Mars being the god of war, the Huns were seen as the epitome of barbaric ruthlessness and cruelty. Now remember, again, Everything we know about the Huns comes to us from their enemies. Procopius, a Byzantine scholar, states that the Huns were completely unacquainted with writing. We don't even have a clear consensus on what language group Hunnic should be assigned to. 
Honestly, until Attila's rise to power, the Roman sources barely mention the Huns at all. Though I have to say, when they do, it can be kind of funny. For example, Ammianus Marcellinus describes the Huns by saying, quote, At the very moment of their birth, the cheeks of their infant children are deeply marked by an iron, in order that the usual vigor of their hair, instead of growing at the proper season, may be withered by the wrinkled scars. And accordingly, they grow up without beards, and consequently without any beauty, like eunuchs, though they all have closely knit and strong limbs, and plump necks. They are of great size and low-legged, so that you might fancy them two-legged beasts, or the stout figures which are hewn out in a rude manner with an axe on the posts at the ends of bridges." End quote. Basically, according to Marcellinus, these people like to make themselves look ugly, and they look like stone bridges. Now keep in mind that Marcellinus was a Roman writing for Romans, so it would be in his best interest to portray these barbarians as inhumanly as possible. Now it's possible that also that the Huns weren't exactly doing themselves any favors on this front, as there is evidence that they practiced not only the scarification of their newborn infants, but also cranial deformation or head binding. Marcellinus continues his list of Hun shortcomings by giving a description of Hun daily habits and he seems to enjoy highlighting the barbarity and absurdity that he finds. According to Marcellinus, the Huns were practically glued to their horses and were incapable of fighting on foot, as their shoes were not made correctly. Jordans weren't out yet, I guess. They would only enter a roofed building if it was absolutely necessary, and they performed almost all of their daily duties from the back of a horse. When not living in their giant wagons, the Huns were allegedly supposed to have slept comfortably in the saddle, by laying over their horses' necks. Finally, if Ammianus is to be believed, the Huns wore their clothes until they rotted off their bodies and were supposed to have worn either linen cloth or the skins of field mice that had been stitched together. As far as we're able to tell, the only things the Huns could really claim to be experts in exporting were horses. But even these horses were ugly, according to the Romans. Vegetius Renatus a Roman veterinarian, was not very complimentary of them. The only positive thing he could muster up in his description was that if you could forget about their ugly appearance, you could see the fine qualities of the horses, things like their sober nature, cleverness, and their ability to endure in injuries very well. Now taken at face value, this collection of short, dirty, stinking horse enthusiasts would have been easy prey for larger and fiercer opponents. Yet modern scholars can easily see Ammianus's hidden agenda as he uses very similar language to both demean and disparage not only the Huns, but the Saracens and the Alans, who were active threats to Rome as well. Despite their appearance and inadequacies, the Huns were definitely feared as they invaded the civilized and sedentary world of the Romans. Zosimus of Constantinople notes that the Huns, quote, occasioned great slaughter among the, among the Scythians, end quote. The Scythians being people groups who had been uh, feared for quite a long time throughout most of recorded history. Jordanes wrote that the Huns were fiercer than ferocity itself and considered them to be born from a union of Gothic witches and unclean spirits. The Huns were particularly deadly as a force of mounted archers, while nomadic mounted archers were nothing new to world history at the time of the Hunnic invasions of Roman territory, the unique and powerful Hun bow certainly increased their killing power. Historian John Mann goes into great detail about the uniqueness of the Hunnic bow and how talented its wielders must have been in order to use it effectively. 
The Hunnic bow by itself possesses unique characteristics that enable it to stand apart from other step archer bows. It has an asymmetrical design when strung, though this in and of itself is not all that different from Zhongnu and Japanese bows, which are pretty similar. However, they were bigger than their counterparts, and with a much more pronounced recurve, which directly translated into more power. Consequently, the arrows of the Huns were able to punch through with all the force of a great typhoon through the armor and shields that other step arrows could not. In battle, the Hunnic bows had a ma maximum range of almost a thousand feet and were, and were able to kill a man at 500 feet. Constructed out of soft wood with bone inlays, these bows were not cheaply or quickly made and Hun craftsmen worked for at least a year on a single bow. The way the bow was used proved crucial to raining hundreds of arrows on the heads of the Hun enemies. In order to see how effective these bows were and are, John Mann looks to modern Hungarian archers who have dedicated their lives to recreating the lost art of mounted archery. In a training complex in northern Hungary, Mann notes the abilities of Lajos Kasai, the individual who Mann regards as the first true mounted archer in Europe since the departure of the Mongols. Mann notes that after years and years of practice, training, failure, Kasai is able to shoot an incredible three arrows in six seconds from the back of a galloping horse and hit the target. That's one arrow every two seconds. Kasai is also able to successfully perform the difficult parting shot, which was famously used to great effect by the Parthians, Huns, and Mongols. As best we can tell, a Hun army would usually number anywhere from 500 to 1,000 strong, and they would initiate battle by firing a volley of arrows at around that 1,000-foot maximum range mark. Zigzagging in and out, the mounted warriors continued to rain arrows down on their enemies, even able to stand up in the saddle to turn around and fire while galloping away, as mentioned a minute ago. Using modern work in mounted archery as a benchmark, John Mann surmises that the Huns were able to put thousands of arrows in the air in a matter of seconds, a feat that Mann equates to a number of machine guns in mass output. The historian Zosimus mentions both the speed of the Huns' riding and their ability to shoot as they rode and wheeled about, which points to some validity in Mann's argument. The speed and firepower the Huns were able to put on display seems like a very early version of the famous German blitzkrieg attacks of the Second World War. As far as the spiritual side of things go, we know a little bit about the Hunnic religion. Moses Dasharansi described their religion as, quote, satanically deluded tree-worshipping errors, end quote. As could be expected, horses played a central role in, in their religion. We know that the Huns were supposed to have offered burnt offerings of horses to a deity that one modern historian equates with a Zhongnu god. This gives some more credence to the idea of, of at the very least, a loose cross-Asian steppe pantheon. But that's just my guess. We also know that horse skulls were used to ward off evil, and that the Huns consulted with shamans and soothsayers when they made their plans. Lastly, we know that while the Huns themselves were not Christian, they certainly did not seem to persecute Christians whom they had conquered. There seems to have been a level of religious tolerance, where as long as you didn't cause the Hun overlords trouble, you could worship however you wanted. That attitude of tolerance seemed to be a persistent theme. Yes, conquered peoples did become slaves of the Huns and were usually put to work cultivating crops and farming to support the Hun war machine. But it seems like once you were in good with the Huns, as long as you followed orders, you were fine, and in some cases, able to prosper. 
An example of this prosperous integration can be seen in the account from Priscus, a Roman ambassador to Attila and his Huns. Priscus states that while he was in the Hun camp, he was approached by a man who he believed to be a Hun. The man greeted Priscus in Greek, and this was an extremely uncommon welcome among the barbarians. And the man informed Priscus that he had been born a Greek and had been a merchant on the Danube River along with his wife. Now the merchant was captured when his home city fell to the Huns, but he had been spared and given to one of Attila's lieutenants. The Greek merchant had fought bravely with the Huns against the Romans and won his freedom. Taking a Hunnic wife, he had had children and enjoyed the privilege of eating at the table of Onegesius, his former master. To Priscus's shock, the Greek merchant claimed that his new life among the Huns was far better than his old life among the Romans. Integration like this into the greater Hunnic society may be part of the reason why it is so difficult to find much in the way of proper Hunnic artifacts in the archaeological record. We have a few ideas of what to look for that indicate the presence of the Huns, with things like non-standard European dress, certain types of cauldrons, and the previously mentioned skulls featuring cranial deformations, along with remnants of the distinctive Hunnic bow that we just talked about. Peter Heather, historian and author of the book Empires and Barbarians, The Fall of Rome and the Birth of Europe, offers the possibility that by the time of the Hun invasions into Europe, the Huns themselves had begun to dress like the Germanic peoples that they had conquered. In addition to learning and partially adopting Germanic language, this may have created a melting pot scenario. Those under Hun authority seemed to have either voluntarily or forcibly been integrated into the greater Hun identity and society to the point where distinctions between people groups became blurred. But as mentioned before, the Huns were more fierce than fierce. The question we have to ask now is how did they get that distinction and why? For starters, the Huns had a tendency to burn all the things and loot all the things in every place they came into contact with. The acquisition of loot, gold, and shiny things was a ma major factor in driving the Hun economy rudimentary though it seems to have been. Most of the time, the best way to avoid the Huns' wrath was to buy them off with tribute. They had the ability to move fast and wipe out villages with the strength of a raging fire, after all. Consequently, the Huns also possessed a psychological advantage, born from the fear and panic that they caused as they swept westward into Roman territory. St. Jerome of Bethlehem heard news of the Huns' coming and, though he was thousands of miles from the danger, still trembled in fear. Gregory of Tours notes in his book, History of the Franks, that the mere rumor of a Hun invasion was enough to incite prayer vigils and fasting among the people of Gaul in the hope that God would turn aside the Huns' wrath. Sometime later, when the Huns were about to invade Gaul a second time, Gregory notes the skill of the Huns in necromancy and their ability to call forth phantom figures to use to defeat their enemies. Gregory's claim certainly seems to fit with the previous observation that the Huns were regarded as the offspring of Gothic witches with evil spirits. What better way to demoralize the Christian enemy than to fight on the side of devils and witches, especially when their most famous leader allegedly claimed to be the scourge of God? This brings us, finally, to the most famous Hun in the history of ever. The life and legend of Attila the Hun has persisted through the centuries and denotes an individual of particular cruelty and barbarity. As we will see, he was a man who was briefly able to challenge what remained of Roman power in both Constantinople and Rome itself. His leadership transformed the Huns from a collection of nomadic tribes of little importance 
into a force that threatened Roman power and helped bring down the Western Roman Empire. A quick note here about my distinguishing between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. Around the year 284 AD, an emperor named Diocletian decided that the Roman Empire had finally become too large to be effectively governed by a single individual. He therefore split the empire in half along an imaginary line that ran just east of the Italian peninsula. Everything to the west of that line became the Western Roman Empire, and everything to the east of that line became the Eastern Roman Empire. In time, the eastern half of the empire would become known as the Byzantine Empire, to later historians as a good way to help with managing historical timelines and things like that. At the time, though, both halves were still known as the Roman Empire, and the people who lived during this time thought of themselves as Romans. By the time our story comes around, the Western Roman Empire had its capital in the city of Ravenna in Italy, and the Eastern Roman Empire had its capital in Constantinople, what is now present-day Istanbul in Turkey. Anyway, back to Attila. We don't know much about Attila before he burst onto the historical scene. His father was a man named Munzuk, and he had a brother named Bleda. And now you know everything there is to know about Attila's mysterious-as-the-dark-side-of-the-moon childhood. In 438 AD, Bleda took over as leader of the Huns. One of his first actions was to demand a meeting with ambassadors from Constantinople. Apparently, Constantinople had stopped paying their annual tribute of 350 pounds of gold to the Huns, and the new leader wasn't going to let that happen. Bleda forced them to double the tribute to 700 pounds of gold a year, and he also forced Constantinople to renounce any alliances that the city had made with any enemies of the Huns, and made them agree not to enter into any future alliances with any Hun enemies at all. Incredibly, Constantinople agreed to those terms. This agreement allowed Bleda and Attila to focus on the western portions of their territory, knowing that they had a steady source of, in of gold incoming from afar. But think for a minute about what just happened and what it means for the political landscape of the times. The Roman Flipping Empire, one of the largest and most successful empires up to that point in history, was paying off an army of stinking horse archers so that they wouldn't be attacked. Now, to be fair, the empire had gone through a ton of upheaval and had fallen far from the heights of its power over the years. But still, it's crazy to me that Bleda was able to pull this off in 435 and then to double the tribute again to 1,400 pounds of gold five years later in 1440. Echoing my unbelief, St. Jerome said of Rome, quote, Who will hereafter credit the fact, or what histories will seriously discuss it, that Rome has to fight within her borders, not for glory, but for bare life, and that she does not even fight, but buys the right to exist by giving gold and sacrificing all her substance? End quote. Anyway, back to the story. In 443 AD, Bleda died. The cause of death is naturally a mystery. Some believe he died in a honey accident. Others put forth that Attila, an ambitious man and not one to sit idly by, taking orders, had him murdered. The Hun-specific campaign in the great game Age of Empires II, The Conqueror's Expansion, presents the player character controlling Attila with multiple options to kill King Bleda, including letting a wild boar attack him, killing him directly themselves, or helping the wild boar kill his brother at Bleda. No matter what happened, Attila recovered all his hit points and succeeded his brother as king of the Huns. In his work, Getica, Byzantine historian Jordanes gives a description of Attila by citing Priscus, the Roman ambassador to the Huns we met earlier. Priscus says of Attila, quote, He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, 
the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind with the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes hither and thither, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to suppliants, and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. He was short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head. His eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose and swarthy complexion, showing the evidences of his origin. End quote. Now, remember, Priscus was a Roman bureaucrat, and his description speaks to the level of respect and fear that the Romans had for this barbarian king who was born to shake the nations. Now, every good nation-shaker, hero, or anti-hero needs to have an epic weapon. Kind of required. Thor has Mjolnir and Stormbreaker. King Arthur has Excalibur. Bilbo and Frodo have Sting. Gandalf has Glamdring, and Aragorn has Andoril, Flame of the West. And Mick Foley has Mr. Sacco. You get the idea. Well, according to Priscus, Attila possessed the legendary Sword of Mars. The story goes that a shepherd noticed that one of the cows in his flock was limping and bleeding. Not seeing anything that could have caused the injury, the shepherd followed the trail of the cow's blood and discovered a sword that the cow had stepped on while eating grass. The shepherd dug the sword up and took it to Attila, who loved the gift. Since Mars was the Roman name for Ares, the Greek god of war, Attila apparently decided that since he had the sword of Mars, he would be victorious in all the wars that were to come. In this legend, we see one of the possible factors for Attila's decisions to direct the Huns to invade Roman territory. If we believe Priscus, Attila thought that he had been divinely appointed to conquer, possibly even believing to be a god himself. According to historian Edward Gibbon, the possession of the Sword of Mars gave Attila the ability to, quote, assert his divine and indefeasible claim to the dominion of the earth, end quote. Regardless of Attila's divine status, claim, or mandate, he was poised to scare, influence, and attack the weak Roman territories that sat across the Danube from his, from his encampments in what is now Hungary. And no, the nation of Hungary did not get its name from the Huns. The word Hungary comes to us from the Latin word Hungaria, which refers to a people group called the Magyars, who came centuries after the Huns. It just so happens that the two people groups inhabited the same territory. At the time of our story, the Hun homeland was called Pannonia. Anyway, Roman territory was vulnerable to attack, and more importantly, it possessed gold and lots of it. Ammianus cites the Huns' infinite thirst for gold to be the reason for the Hun advance. Attila's thirst for gold was born not only out of the necessity of paying his constituents to keep him happy, but according to John Mann, was also for the more practical reason of buying food to feed his people, at least in the beginning. Yet while the payments extracted from Rome and Constantinople may have begun as a way to provide for his people, these payments soon came to be seen as the most effective way to forestall further Hunnic attacks, as long as the rest of Attila's demands were met quickly and guilelessly. So we know that Attila needed gold to possibly help feed his people, but what about Attila's own hopes and dreams for, for them? Why threaten an empire no matter how weak? Historian Patrick Howarth states that Attila desired for his people to become a great world power, and to do that, the Huns must learn from the other great powers. Now, Shakespeare said that all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, and you get the sense that Attila was trying to prove to the world that the Huns deserved a place on that world stage, 
and he would do whatever he could in order to earn that place before his exit. So in 447 AD, Attila marched on Constantinople. He bypassed the fortified areas and began laying waste to the countryside, destroying large numbers of cities in the process. Callinicus, an ecclesiastical chronicler, described the procession by stating, quote, The barbarian nation of the Huns, which was in Thrace, became so great that more than a hundred cities were captured. There were so many murders and bloodlettings that the dead could not be numbered. I, for they took captive the churches and monasteries, and slew monks and maidens in great quantities. End quote. Now in January of 447, an earthquake and subsequent flooding had destroyed large parts of the city of Constantinople. More than 50 defensive towers were destroyed, along with several sections of the city's walls. In some areas, those walls were almost 40 feet thick, and were the only thing standing between the city itself and invading armies like the one Attila was coming to town with. Naturally, panic erupted because, you know, Attila. But in two months, the walls were repaired. Had the Huns used their traditional Blitzkrieg-like attacks, it is possible that the city would have fallen and history would have been rewritten. But instead, for some reason, Attila's army took its time, plundering and burning the countryside, and the city was able to recover. Instead of letting Attila attack the city, Constantinople sent out an army to engage the Huns some distance from the city in Thrace. Unfortunately for the Romans, the Huns were able to win. In the end, Attila did not end up attacking Constantinople, possibly because he did not have the siege equipment necessary to crack the defenses. Again, the walls were 40 feet thick in some places. But a more likely reason for not attacking could be from disease amongst his troops, malaria and dysentery in particular, just like good old Oregon Trail. Instead of attacking, Attila simply increased his demands and withdrew from the city. Now, at this point in the story, Attila had executed successful campaigns into Greece and had cowed the great city of Constantinople. After all of this, he may have been content to control the majority of the territory on his side, the eastern side of the Danube, with only occasional visits to Roman territory. You know, just for the occasional raiding and pillaging just to get it out of his system. But all those plans were changed, however, with the intervention of Honoria, the older sister of Emperor Valentinian III of the Western Roman Empire. In childhood, Honoria had been raised in privilege and had aspirations to rule in her own right. Now, thanks to her brother Valentinian's children, she was thwarted in her attempts to gain power legitimately through the royal succession. She isn't mentioned much in the historical record, which seems to be a recurring theme in this episode, but we do know that she wanted a rule. After a scandalous affair with her attendant, a man named Eugenius, she tried to get her boyfriend crowned emperor. Her brother, Emperor Valentinian III, discovered this plot, had Eugenius executed, and tried to force his brother to marry a rich Roman consul named Bassus Herculanus. Upset over this perceived indignity of being forced to marry, Honoria fumed. But then she got an idea. An awful idea. Honoria got a wonderful, awful idea. In her desperation, Honoria turned to Attila the Hun of all people and changed the course of history. In the spring of 450, Honoria sent a letter to Attila offering herself in marriage to the Hunnic king. She would become one of Attila's wives and would, therefore, at least potentially be queen of Gaul, which Attila had shown signs of wanting to wreak havoc in. Sending a ring as a sign of her sincerity, she begged Attila to come quickly and rescue her from her hateful marriage. Once news of this foolish act broke, it caused a great scandal among the upper echelons of Roman society. 
Having just placated Attila after a failed Byzantine assassination plot, Theodosius, the emperor in Constantinople, understandably did not want to rouse Attila's wrath even further and advised his co-ruler in Rome, Valentinian, Honoria's brother, to simply give Honoria what she wanted and hand her over. Valentinian instead refused and sent Honoria to their mother, Gaia Placidia, in Rome. Shortly thereafter, Placidia died and Honoria herself faded from history, but the consequences of her actions did not. If Honoria actually intended to go through with the marriage to the Hunnic king or not, Attila certainly interpreted her letter that way. He accepted her story and claimed half of the Western Roman Empire as his dowry. Western Roman Emperor Valentinian, whose territory his sister had just given away, made panicked efforts to deny the legitimacy of the marriage offer. These were rejected by Attila, who stated that he was on his way to claim what was rightfully his. Honoria, he claimed, was his by rights. Everything she possessed belonged to him, as it had been given to her by her father, and denied to her by her brother's greed. So confident in his power and ability to cow the Romans, Attila is reported to have instructed his ambassadors in Ravenna and Constantinople to say, Attila, my lord and thy lord, commands thee to provide a place for his immediate reception. Once again, Attila presumed to order emperors to do his bidding. When the inevitable refusal came, he marched on Gaul. Now, while all this was going on, Emperor Theodosius in Constantinople decided to take a ride on his horse in July of 450. While on this ride, the emperor fell from his horse and died from a broken neck. He was succeeded as emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire by a man named Martian. Now, we'll circle back to Martian in our next episode, but the big point to know here is that with Theodosius dead, the Eastern Roman Empire now had a leader who refused to continue the tribute payments of his predecessor. Where Theodosius had been reduced to ask for the clemency of Attila, who had imposed humiliating conditions of peace, Marcion, the new emperor, would have none of that. Emperor Marcion, upon hearing demands for payment from Hunnic ambassadors, bluntly told them that his gold was for his friends, while his iron was for his enemies. This reply, coming while Attila was in the process of gathering a massive army with which to attack the Visigoths in Gaul, could not have looked wise to the people of the time. Fortunately for Emperor Marcion, in the moment, Attila had Honoria's offer to consider and accept. In 451, Attila and his army crossed the Danube River and invaded Gaul. Some accounts put his army to be half a million strong, but as we saw in our Mithridates series, the numbers of armies tended to get massively inflated. In any event, the Huns were able to sweep virtually unopposed through what is now France and Germany, burning and pillaging and spreading fear and terror at the mention of their name. On April 7, 451, Attila laid siege to the city of Metz, one of the oldest and most important cities in the frontier of the Western Roman Empire. The city was a vital military base, a center of ecclesiastical importance, and one of the best wine exporters of the time. Gregory of Tours describes the siege, saying, quote, The Huns, issuing from Pannonia, reached the city of Metz on the vigil of the Feast of Easter, devastating the whole country. They gave the city to the flames and slew the people with the edge of the sword, and did to death the priests of the Lord before the holy altars. End quote. According to Gregory, only one church was left standing in the whole city, and that only with the intervention of St. Paul and St. Peter. The interesting thing here, aside from the destruction of the entire city, of course, was how the church leaders wrote about the situation and dealt with the outcome here at Metz and later in other cities. 
It seems that the church leaders concluded that the barbaric, wanton destruction was a result of the sins of the people. Where there was sin, the Huns destroyed, and where there was repentance, the Huns did not destroy. This religious association with sin and destruction was repeated over and over again, and at times even saw the direct intervention of the saints, as we saw with that one church in Metz. Bishop Servais of Tongre began praying and fasting when he heard that the Huns were invading Gaul-slash-France. According to Gregory of Tours, he, quote, begged God in his mercy not to allow this incredible people, who were altogether unworthy of the Lord, to enter Gaul, end quote. Servais was told that because of the sins of the people, it had been decided that the Huns would not only enter Gaul, but would devastate it in the manner of a great hurricane. And devastate it they did. Tangra fell quickly, and Attila was able to turn his attention to a less important city, Paris. But it was here that something different happened. Living in the city was a girl named Genevieve. She had become known in Paris for her great acts of charity and for her visions of angels and other saintly figures. In 451, when terror of the Huns swept through the city, she and some others encouraged the panicked Parisians not to flee, but to pray. Apparently, this act of faith was enough to turn Attila away from attacking Paris. He instead went on to the town of Troyes, where again he was met with something completely different. Seeing the panic and terror of his people, the bishop of Troyes decided to try to talk Attila out of attacking his city. The bishop prayed and fasted and put on his best pontifical attire and walked out of the city to go meet Attila and his army. Coming up to Attila at the head of the Hun army, the bishop asked the king who he was. Attila gave himself his most famous nickname by replying, Ego sum Attila, flagellum die, or I am Attila, the scourge of God. And that's where we'll end our story, with one of the best, most awesome phrases in this whole story. Now, the story of Attila and the Huns is only a two-parter, so join us next time for the conclusion and to find out how a stork doomed an, an entire city. Finally, I'm incredibly grateful to everyone who's been recommending the show on iTunes and on social media. It means a whole lot to me, and I love seeing all the support and encouragement that uh, I've been getting. Keep the reviews coming and keep recommending the show to coworkers, shopkeepers, veterinarians, and librarians, and basically anybody and everybody. Remember, you can always get in touch with me by email at historyontheside at gmail.com and through Facebook and Instagram while I'll post some pictures related to what we're talking about in the episodes. Just search History on the Side Podcast and enjoy. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time when we conclude with The Scourge of God, Part 2.